0: David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy, because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. And welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. Last time I checked, I'm Elliot Harris, so that means David Spada is either the Invisible Man or, since today is February 14th, he may be doing some last-minute Valentine shopping for flowers and or candy. We have a great show today. We will have bikini competitor Samantha Slavin later in studio. But first, we have Pro Football Hall of Famer, Charlie Joyner.
1: I see you started your college career grambling. Did Eddie Robinson recruit you personally, or did you just decide I wanted to play for him?
2: No, he didn't recruit me. I was recruited by my high school coaches, because both of them played for Eddie Robinson. And back in the old days in Louisiana, in high school, even a black high school in Louisiana, the coaches either played for Eddie Robinson, or he went to grambling. So naturally, you were going to Grandma when you graduated from high school. He didn't have to come out and recruit. He just was going. So Eddie Robinson didn't even need to recruit. He, he knew he could get the best black ball players. They would, yes, they would just come to him, right? Oh, yeah. So that's what it was when we got back to him in those days. When he was going real good, he's real powerful, real strong. He had been in Gramlin for about uh, maybe 25, 30 years. Maybe yeah, about twenty five, thirty years. So, so he was pretty well established within the city because almost everybody was grammar or subject to Down the way, down, the two black schools. So naturally the black high school interrupts get most of the best athletes. So they either I say coach the principal or the athlete director or what? Or they or they want as student athlete as students. Now, what was playing Freddie Robinson like? Uh, it was a joy to play for him. He was tough. He coached, he, you know, had very long practices. But I think he really taught you how to compete. He taught you, you know, don't let nobody get on top of you. You gotta be on top all the time. He was a great coach, not a great coach. And, you know, maybe his practice level is outdated now, but back then, I think it was good for the kind of people we had.
1: Did he have you play multiple positions in college, or at that time was it basically you would play either on the offense or defensive side of the ball?
2: Well, the only time I went from one side and the ball to the other, was when I was a freshman. And we had to have a look team for the first team. and I was a freshman, so I was on a look team. That's when I, went. I was kind of from look team, and I would play offensive wide receiver on the, on, for the defense for the offense. So when I looked at him. I played two spots. When I started playing, which was my sophomore year, I uh, only played one spot. Was the transition from high school to college fairly easy for you? From high school to coach to college, impossible, <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, that was a tough. That was a tough transition for me uh, because I don't know. I, I you know I was a small guy. I weighed about 185 pounds. And then I go to Grambling with just some <laughs> enormous, massive people. And I'm just saying to myself, what am I doing here? It should be, I'm just too small, I won't survive. But it was just the, the, the size of the guys that got That's all. The Grambling, because Grambling has a big, big people. They had 300 problems before the 300 problems
1: became popular. At Grambling, was it a passing offense more, or a running offense, or was it pretty uh, uh, balanced?
2: No, we were more running offense. Uh, we, when we got to James Harris, like we both were the other, we started throwing the ball just a little bit more. But basically, Grandma was a Russian offensive team. We ran the wing tee, I can tell you that. We didn't have a split-out wide receiver. Now, you, you were part of uh, the 1968 Grambling Morgan State game, which uh, CBS Sports had a documentary about uh highlighting historically black uh colleges. what was that like and that was uh that was a pretty good experience for us you know we were much small guys from small college guys from Louisiana we hadn't never been out to state as far as say we've been as Tennessee or like that, and they had to go there by bus we get a chance to play this game in in New York and uh I thought we had to jump on an airplane we couldn't couldn't drive the bus that far, so we' had to get on airplanes so we was a new experience for us and folks, we were playing somebody that we had now never played before, which was another new experience for us and uh, we kind of enjoyed that and we um we relished the right to be the first one to do it and I think it became a kind of a mm I, 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 I don't know what you can call it but um mm, oh, I don't know, just a little event, that's all. But it was a big event for us. When
1: you got drafted by the Houston uh, Houston Oilers, did you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to the AFL, I'd rather play in the NFL because it was
2: more of an established league? No, uh, because most of the people that used to train us and be with us was uh in the NFL. I mean in the AFL. Willie Brown played for the Denver Broncos and the Oakland Raiders. You know, he, he was a ground night, and he would always come back and coach us and uh doing spring training. And Nehemiah Wilson was also in the AFL, in, the, in the AFL and uh Gold was in the AFL. All of the guys that we played with at Grammar that were playing professional football in, they were all in know what? AFL. Now there's very few in the NFL. I think the only guy that went to the NFL was Henry Dye. He went to the Rams. But almost everybody else, like Goldie and William Brown and uh, Nehemiah Wilson and all of the guys we played with, they were all in the AFL. So going to the AFL, we was down kind of treat for me. Being drafted in the fourth round, was, was that better than you expected, worse than yeah. you expected? What were we anticipating when the draft came around? <laughs> <laughs> Just to get drafted, really. Just to get drafted. I really did. I, I You know, I, I wasn't expecting her to be, you know, to get picked up high. I knew I was going to get picked up high. Um, but being the fourth pick in the second round, the second pick in the fourth round, it surprised me that I got up that high. And uh, the reason why is because I think a, fr- a friend of mine who was a, an assistant coach at Brown Mountain who became a scout for the U.S. and all of you know, it. and name was Tom Williams. I think he drafted me that high, you know. And I, from this day on, and God bless Paul, so I know he's in there with us. I always thank him for taking that because he got me just a couple of dollars more dollars where I could help my parents out.
1: You mentioned that your quarterback at Grambling was James Harris. Can you imagine James Harris playing in today's NFL? I mean, he would get a huge contract, and they would have utilized all his skills.
2: Uh, yeah, he just, Came along at the wrong time, that's all. He was born too soon. That's what Ed Rob used to tell us all the time. You were born too soon. Because in fact, they wanted him to just be a pure drop-back passer, right? Oh, he was, back, he was a drop-back passer. He was not a wrong He wasn't, wasn't a move-around guy like the guys they have today. But he was a classic drop-back passer with a great arm and great accuracy. Very good player.
1: With the Oilers down there in Houston, with the Oilers down there in Houston, when you're with them, was it a more open style of play than you were used to, at Grambling?
2: Oh no, uh, it was almost insane. That's that's for Because back then the coaches used to all-Italian the with them, and you, basically, you, you, you know, run the ball for you, run run the ball to set up the pass, run the ball to set up the pass. But he was pretty good though and 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 at the time I was with him, I was also drafted as a defensive back too, so I didn't play wide receiver full time until I got till about my third year there.
1: Who made the decision to make you a defensive back because you didn't play defensive back really in college? you told us
2: that was Tom Williams, that was the guy who used to coach the freshman team when I was defensive back on the look team at my freshman year he was the head. he was the coach of the look team, so I was playing defensive back then. And uh, I guess he thought like I could play defensive back because he was a coaching ground then. And then uh, you and Floyd Little uh, on the football field, like, like one of your friends, did you get knocked out tackling Floyd Little? <laughs> Floyd Little, yeah, Floyd Little, the one thing that got knocked me out of a game. Well, believe me, I was the only oh, no, artist two times, two times Floyd Little and uh, Tom Jackson. That's only two people that would knock me out of a game. Those are two pretty good football players there who knocked you out. Damn good football players, You know, one is uh, one is in the Hall of Fame, and the other one should be in the Hall of Fame, as good as he was.
1: Do you ever thank Floyd Little and say, thanks for knocking me out because of you I became a wide receiver, and that's why I'm in the Hall of Fame?
2: That surely helped, I tell you. That surely helped me, but I never told him that. <laughs> I don't know if I ever will, but that's, that, that got me to be a full-time wide receiver. Speaking of the Hall of Famers, after... To get traded to the Cincinnati Bengals, and uh, Paul Brown is the coach. What was he like? Uh, he's um, very stern, very, you know, very, you know, very stern. You know, he ran it with a kind of ran ship with an iron fist. Um, he's very intimidating the way he talks to you. Um, but he's one of the most knowledgeable men in the world. He knew how to pick talent. Paul Brown, you know, he, he has some great coaches behind him, so he's always, you know, he can always, he, he can always have that threat when you're losing your job. He, 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 he was good for the system, he was good for the league, and, and um, he was good for the discipline because he's always scared the hell out of me. Was he still coaching
1: at that time, or was he just a figurehead and his assistant coaches were doing more of the work?
2: Uh, he had I head coach. But I think Bill Walsh did most of the stuff. Bill Walsh and Bill Johnson. And J.D. Uh, Johnson, the back-field, backfield coach, that's one of the I've associated. The defensive coach is Chuck Weber. I don't you know if kind of I'm with him as well. But the offense, I think Paul Brown, was the head coach, and Bill Johnson, was the offensive coordinator. And Bill Walsh and J.D. Uh, Johnson, 1980, Donaldson almost everything. He, he was not an active coach. He was a head coach by name. So, with the Bengals, you had a pretty, pretty good passing game. You had uh, Ken Anderson at quarterback, and another receiver was Isaac Curtis. Right. Uh, well, what was that like? That, that, that uh, you to get was a very good passing group that Bill Walters put together, right there. Um, with myself, Isaac Curtis, and Chip Miles with the wide receivers. Bob Trump, uh with the tight end, So sure, Bob Trumpler was one of the fastest tight ends I ever seen. And you know, he wasn't big. He wasn't big. One of the tight ends, but he was really fast, and he was more of a receiver than he was a blocker. But We had a real good passing game. Canales was an extremely accurate passer, very accurate, and he should be in that Hall of Fame also. But uh. All plans I do in Cincinnati was very good. I, I think the complete, com, completion percentages were always high every year I was there.
1: Did you realize at that time that Bill Walsh would make a great ha- head coach and become what he became all those years with the 49ers? No, I
2: didn't. I didn't think he <laughs> Bill Walsh is kind of a jovial guy. You know, he likes to kid around with the players sometimes. He likes to laugh and joke with them sometimes. Although he got real serious about football when time for football came. But other than that, he was real joke. He wasn't. He wasn't the type that you would think going to be a greatest one of the greatest coaches of all time. You just didn't think that when we were in Cincinnati. But hey, uh, you, you know he's got the mind. And he put it to work. And I'll admit that personality in San Francisco did not change from that same personality was in Cincinnati. So a couple of seasons, three seasons in Cincinnati, then you get traded to the Chargers. And, you know, Air Coriel's in high gear with Don Coriel, the coach. What was your anticipation going to San Diego? Uh, the anticipation, that was a... The hell, Beaville, you know, San Diego had a wealth of first round draft picks. And second round picks had Lloyd uh, Louis Kelcher, Big Hands Johnson, Woodville, Lowe. They had a bunch of guys. They had a lot of talent there. And all they did was just, what they needed somebody to put it all together. And, um Coach Pulto was the coach there. And, uh, I heard he was a very, very smart man. And what really sold me you on know, making this making a real good move was the fact that we had Bill Walsh to be the offensive coordinator in San Diego you know, the same year I got traded there. And with Walsh going there, I knew that's the place that I wanted to go on
1: So you had two great offensive minds there and Don Coriel and Bill Walsh. I mean, they had to make it a lot easier on you guys because you knew, listen, these guys know what they're doing.
2: Oh yeah, well, look uh, now Coriel and Walsh did not work together, okay? Oh, okay. Walsh came in for one year as coordinator, one year as coordinator, and then he left to go to be the head coach at Stanford University. And then from Stanford he went on to San Francisco. The so when did Coriel come in? Coriel came in in 70, 76, '78. Okay. Yeah. And then you hit Walsh was gone, but Walsh was gone by then.
1: I mean that offense in San Diego in the late seventies, early eighties. I remember Dan Fouts re- running back was Chuck Muncie, John Jefferson, and you at receiver, Kellen Winslow at tight end. I mean you had all pros at every position.
2: Yeah, Korea. I mean Korea did an excellent job of getting some very, 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 very good skilled players. The five skilled positions. I think we had some best in the league. Besides, we had the six field positions. I think we had some best players in the league at that time. How quickly in your career did you realize that you could beat somebody special? You know, more than just an average player in the NFL. Uh, you know, I never thought. I just, I just going on that kitchen bowl. I never thought about it. <laughs> Without well, an average player, without well, a great player, without well, a very good player. I was just having fun going out there on the football field. And the way Coriel excited people before a game, it was fun going to play him. You know, it was really fun. It was more fun than anything else. It wasn't drudgery. It was kind of like you wanted to go out there and participate. And even were there those howling crowds, we always had big crowds with San Diego and Coriel there. Because he was a. He was a, he was a uh, he was a city. He was a city fun, you know, like in those days. Correo was a deep person in San Diego, and I didn't, I didn't think it was drudgery. I just thought it was fun, and it was hard working, but it was fun, and you loved looking at Curiel go deep line every Sunday.
1: And Curiel, what he trained under was it Sid Gilman, I believe.
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Now, he it, what, coached. Sid coached San Diego for a while, too. Yeah, now, Sid Gilmore started You know, he from about 59, when they were all Los Angeles Chargers, to 60, they became the San Diego Chargers. Now, Sid Gilmore was handed in from, you know, from those years up to Pro Tour, I think, you know. He also had great offensive teams also, you know, Lance Alworth, all those guys. they were great, a great, great passing game. They had also Gary Garrison, Lance Alworth, Jock McKinnon. They did very well. But Sid Gilman, I don't know if Correa and Sid Gilman crossed. Because I think the year that Sid was going to coach, the head coach of San Diego Chargers, Don Correa was coaching uh, the San Diego State Aztecs. Now, you never made it to a Super Bowl, but you did get to a couple of uh, AFC title games in 80 and 81. Uh, Right. you remember those games? Um yeah, I know one thing one of them was against the Oakland Raiders. And uh Oakland came in and they just ran the football and just ran in and just ran it and kept the ball away from offense. Offense cannot do anything because the Oakland just came in and ran the ball, ran it, ran it. And then we went to Cincinnati and played in the Cobo. Unfortunate, you know. <clears throat> we played the Raiders and it never rained in San Diego, it rained that Sunday. And it, it kind of shuts down the passing game because it makes us feel real slow. And then we go to the other pale field championship game. We go to Cincinnati, and the wind chill factor is 60-0. And we just talk some bad, bad, climatic, climatic uh, weather things, you know, that really kind of put, put a bite on us.
1: You probably thought to yourself, I got out of Cincinnati because I want to play in this weather, and now I get stuck in one of the coldest games in history.
2: Oh, I know. It was was unbelievable there. I still say that game should not have been played. The game should have been moved to a central site somewhere we could have a better ALC championship game.
1: That football football had to feel like a rock that day.
2: Yeah, it was a rock. It was like picking up a concrete ball brick. I don't know. I, I can't see how far to for even trying to throw the football. But Cincinnati wasn't trying to throw it that much. But we had to we had to try to throw it because we got behind pretty quick. So we were trying to throw the football and there's just no way you could throw that ball. No way. They should have canceled that game. How did you end up with number eighteen? I don't know. I, I kinda I kinda changed the Jersey number. I had I had Jersey forty in Houston when I got drafted. And I think I had a Jersey 40 for about one year. And then and then uh I became a defensive I became a wide receiver. And I think all the eighties were gone and next trading count, like the second year, all the eighties were gone so I had to pick a number below eight I had to pick a team top so pick 18. team.
1: Is there a reason why Don Corell's not in the Hall of Fame? I mean, this guy was an innovator and they're still running these offenses to this day.
2: This guy would probably the greatest offensive innovator around. I cannot I cannot understand why he's not in the Hall of Fame. That's strictly up to the writers and the road. I see the idiot leave that death? Cause I think I've done it as much as I possibly can, I've talked about it as much as I possibly can, I've written about it as much as I possibly can. Is up to the writers in the road or not? But I just don't understand why he's not in Hall of Fame either. Now, when you retired, you had uh, a record 750 receptions for your career. Is it one that uh, one catch that stands out in your mind? I think I think the one one reception that really stands out in my mind was basically the one that broke the record in Pittsburgh. I know it's a very short pass, but that, that period in her career that was short passes. And now uh, control passes, which down passes. And it just came on a what, very short, third and third down situation, and I just have to catch the ball that broke a record. That's what I do with A lot of the other guys don't even know for that much. I don't know if it's because I'm getting over you know, Right now, maybe I'm getting something. I don't know but I mean, but the one that really caught it, the one that broke the record, I do remember that
1: one. Then you went into coaching. A lot of great players make bad coaches, but you worked with some receivers and made them great receivers. I mean, with the Bills, you had, what, James Lofton, you had Andre yeah. Reed, and then with the Chargers, mm-hmm. Vincent Jackson, and Melk yeah. Floyd. I mean, was it... Easy to impart your knowledge to them? I mean, were they receptive because you were a great player, or did it? you basically have to earn their respect?
2: Uh, I think you got to earn their respect first. And then I think you, just, you, you integrate the two systems. You know, because they always have ideas of how they want to perform. And then you put together your ideas of how you want them to perform. And then you, you, just, try to, you just try to find a common ground. Don't way you can communicate with these guys because the communication language is totally different when I played 26 years ago and they playing now. You got to get on that communication level first, and once you do that, then coaching becomes fun. Then you integrate the two systems the way you want it done, the way he like would like to do it sometimes, and just integrate it and have a good that relationship. How's a guy last 18 seasons in the NFL as a wide receiver? I think it's from the necessity of knowing that there were three women in my house, and women are very, very expensive. And I think <laughs> that you to pay that many years to get over the house. Because my daughters and my wives were terribly expensive. So I just kept playing, kept playing because I knew I would need the, the revenue later on like so I can really complete their lives, so they can do almost the thing, do most of the things that they wanted
1: to do. Did it be enjoyable coaching with the Bills? Because I mean, the Bills' offense was similar to San Diego because Jim Kelly was running a pretty much a passing offense there, and he was audibleing a lot and doing a lot of no huddle then. And the quarterback was similar to what Dan Fouts was doing with San Diego. Uh, yeah, the
2: only difference between what we did and what Buffalo did. He said, uh, we actually called the plays, okay? Fouts did not call very many plays. He got the seamless on the sideline, and that's the way he liked it. You know, he would like for Ernie to have the pressure of calling the plays or would have Ernie have the luxury of calling the plays, and so you would execute them on the field. Now, there's something that Ernie didn't call that he didn't like. You would definitely change it. But he, he was more receptive to being told the play from the sideline. Kelly did it in a, in a lot of fashion where he actually called every play. So he, uh, he almost had to set his own game plan every week. He and Frank Wright did a great job of setting their game to every week, and which is pretty good. And they both offense were very similar. They both had three wide receivers in the game most of the time. And they, and they both had one great tight end who could also block doing the same thing. they both had two great quarterbacks. So basically that offense was almost the same. It's got to it in a different way, different language for the Coyle offense from d- to a different language to the, um, i forget that coach's name, was at Baltimore. That was his offense, the Kagan offense. Now, you retired in 86, and then you got elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 96. Mm-hmm. Were you confident that that day was going to come, or did did you wonder? Uh, no, I, I I always knew that would have a good. I knew you had to wait five years before you became eligible, and then you then it took me five more years to get in. But I knew that day was coming because um, I think uh, James Harris, my quarterback in college, he always said, "Hey, Charlie, the record hole is always going to the Hall of Fame." And uh, I kept depending on that and depending on that. And, and all of a sudden, happened, you know. And, hey, you know, it's hard to keep record holder out of the Hall of Fame.
1: Who do you think the next receiver that goes in the Hall of Fame will be?
2: Well, I, you know, I haven't tried to figure that out for the last two or three years. I think the next guy should be Andre Reed. I thought Andre Reed was a great wide receiver. I think he should be the next one to go in. Now, that's not totally up to me, and I understand that. But Andre Reid shit being in the Hall of Fame, the Super Bowl he went to. Yeah. What he did, being a leading receiver for that team for most of those years, I didn't think I knew to should be next time i go in. But I don't control the both. I wish I did, but I don't. During your career, was there one defensive pass that gave you trouble? There were two of them, yeah. I always thought Will Brown was the best bumper-run corner I ever faced, and he was, because he was a little bigger and a little stronger. And I always thought Mel Blunt of Pittsburgh was the best cover-two corner that ever played. Those two guys gave me fits Because they were so big. They were a little big and they looked strong. And you are back in those days. Now, I don't know if they can handle the wide receivers today, because the wide receivers up today are just a little bigger than we are. But they could handle the wide receivers back in Iowa. And those two guys gave me fits Because so they were bigger and the I did around them.
1: But what the receivers today don't understand is they're putting up these stats. It's a lot easier because you you can't touch receiver after five yards. It's a lot less physical with the receivers. I mean, back when you were playing and the guys in the 50s and 60s, they would hold these guys.
2: That's right. They could hit you all the way down the field if they wanted to. I know the receivers are a little protected now, and – uh it's just to make the game just a little more exciting so you get the passing game that uh that excites the fans. Yes, you get it going a little bit more. But uh, you know, if we did have some of that leeway back in the old days, um, you know, I'm gonna you know, call it a thousand power which a catching this seven fifty.
1: What do you think of Randy Moss's comment that he's the best receiver that ever played?
2: Um <laughs> it's very good for a guy to feel that way. And um you know, he's extremely, in fact, he might be the most talented guy that ever played. I will be the best receiver ever played, I don't think so. But he could be the most talented. Talent wise, he might be. But just being a great football player and being a very good football player, he's not. So I just hate to take the, the little plus away from him because I just don't think that he is the best receiver ever play game. There's too many other great players out there. I uh, grant you he needs his credit. He due do his credit. But they are some awful of other great people out there. So How much of your success or how much of a wide receiver's success comes not from his physical skills but from the net up? I totally believe that if you don't have a halfway decent good IQ that you would not do a very good football player. Especially in today's game because there are so many checks. there's so many automatic checks. Not just for the wide receivers, but also for the quarterbacks. I just think you got to know exactly what was going on to be a very good player in today's league. Back then, when the offense was not so loaded, you, you see the offense coordinator, they got a big sheet in front of them, and they could have about 200 plays on each side of that sheet. And that's a lot of stuff for a guy to remember. So a guy has really got to be almost told to know exactly what he's doing. He's Study a little bit harder now. He's got to go home and cut uh, his nightlife down just a little bit now because he's got this study what's going on.
0: And that was Charlie Joyner, Pro Football Hall of Fame wide receiver who started his career as a defensive back and ended it as the guy with, as the all-time leader in career receptions and receiving yards. Spent 44 years in the NFL, 18 of them as a player. Not bad. Not bad at all. You are listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. And when we come back, we hope to have bikini competitor Samantha Slavin, who I believe at this moment is unloading some of her trophies from her car to bring into the studio. So please stay tuned.